Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Casablanca, the 1942 film directed by Michael Curtiz, screenplay by Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch, based on the play by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetas. Hi. Okay, so we're talking about Casablanca, one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Brian's just going to hate on it this whole episode. Right. Not at all. <laughs> I'd love to see him trying. Um, yeah, so this film is wonderful. And I remember being very resistant to seeing it throughout mm. most of, you know, I think I saw it when I was like, 20 something 22 so earlier than i've had worse offenders probably but you know growing up you you see clips you see the the parodies you know you feel like you know so much about it and it's like right. oh it's that old movie and this thing and those quotes and blah 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 and i remember being yeah forced to watch it and just loving it like just mm. being like transported to this whole other place and just like wow this movie is so good i think it was like a girl I was dating showed it to me and then like she went home and then I like watched it again because I was like, no, but like, <laughs> wait a minute, that movie was really good. And so I've seen it several times since then. Uh, haven't seen it in a little while now, but was really excited to dive back in. And just the writing is incredible. The performances are incredible. The camera, the, like there's a reason why it's regarded as one of the greatest films ever made. Um and there are just so many yeah, lessons to extract from it. It feels classic, but it feels contemporary and modern also at the same time. There's mm -hmm. just so much going on here. Um, so I love this movie. I can't wait to talk about it with you guys. Um, so let's I want to hear yeah, your guys relationship with this movie. So Trisha, tell me about Casablanca. Oh boy, this is one of my favorite movies ever. I've seen it dozens upon dozens of times, probably. It's one of the ones I go back to all the time when I'm looking for something to watch. And like, I watched it probably two nights ago in preparation for this podcast. I would watch it again right now. Um, it's so good. Like, it's astounding to me that the movie was able to capture these universal things. And obviously we talk about universality and specificity all the time, but it's one of these rare love stories that because of the situation that the characters are bound up in, there's no right answer. And it's so that the entanglement of it is so compelling the way that the characters are kind of stuck in the situations that they're in. And like each scene is just full of conflict like every single scene is loaded with like who's to say what what's gonna happen next like and the stakes keep ratcheting up and ratcheting up for the characters and like it's also equal parts it feels like sort of dramatic thriller and also like love story and also like comedy in places it's really funny and and mm. or it's it's the kind of funny that's witty in a way that I don't feel like movies are often witty anymore, um, where they're not relying on like the situations themselves are not funny. And there's not really physical comedy, I would say, either. It's just like this really sharp wit that makes the scenes um, so memorable. And there's a reason why so many of these lines, like the most famous movie lines of all time, like 
I don't know, a dozen of them are in this movie, maybe. Mm, at least. Um, <laughs> and every time I show yeah. it to someone new, they're like, oh, that's where this is from. Oh, that? Yeah. Oh, I know that line, too. And it's like, yeah, that's because the dialogue is incredible. The entire final scene feels like, oh, you know, yeah. you're <laughs> right, watching yeah. a parody of other movies. <laughs> <at this point. laughs> totally. Anyway, it's so good. I can't wait to unpack every little bit of it with you guys, although we... I guess we're only going to be here for too short of a time. <laughs> we will do what we can. Like Paris. Uh, I know. We'll always have this podcast. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, Brian, what about you? Uh, yeah, I watched it um, back probably in my early 20s when I was kind of doing a, you know, um, required reading of a bunch of classic <laughs> films. And uh, and yeah, I liked it right away. Uh, it was It was really... I think it was one of those movies where I realized you can't, there are these old movies that are still, that do still feel modern, you know, and are very watchable and, and entertaining and, you know, structure like time hasn't changed much in, in 80 years in terms of the average length of a movie. Obviously movies are getting longer these days, but you still have plenty of movies that are just like hour 50 minutes and like the structure is roughly the same. Um, but yeah, I think watching Casablanca and Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity were like that kind of made me go, oh, wow, OK, movies aren't too old. Like you can watch old <laughs> movies and still right. be like, oh, yeah. no, I'm totally like this feels modern. The language and, you know, certain things about it are going to feel old and feel dated. But in terms of just watching a story unfold in front of you, it it absolutely is, um, you know, still feels still feels very modern. And uh, and yeah, I have seen it a few times since then. I wrote a column about it um, back in the day, which was really fun to revisit it and really think about it. You know, it's a movie that you can watch and just sort of enjoy the um, the kind of spectacle of it and the romance of it. But then to watch it and really kind of dig into it, which many people have done over the past 80 <laughs> years. But um, but it just really it, it's a movie that becomes more and more rewarding the more you think about it, as some of the best movies do, whether it's Jurassic Park or The Matrix or something like that, where you're like, oh, no, this movie gets better when you think about it, as opposed to other movies where you're like, that was really fun. And then when you think about it, you're like, oh, that falls apart so hard. And it, it wasn't about anything. And it didn't mean, you know, uh, this movie just like it, it sort of holds up to all sorts of scrutiny, which I think makes it really, um, really exciting to talk about so many years later um and then yeah watching again for this was just you know things i hadn't thought about before things i'd noticed before things i'm sure you guys will point out that i hadn't thought about before so excited to chat with you guys about it awesome yeah so much to talk about cool alex what about you so i feel like some shame with this movie because i saw it when i was like i don't know middle school high school like i was basically too young to appreciate it and like what mm -hmm. didn't follow the geopolitics didn't follow the time period of what was really going on in the world and why are these people here? What, what are they talking about? Uh, so however I saw it, I don't even, I don't recall. I know I've seen it and I, I have a bunch of images from it in my head also from pop culture, but um, I really did not appreciate it. I thought like that was fine. It was kind of boring. They were talking about a lot of stuff I didn't really follow. So watching it last night, I was like, holy cow, this movie is so good. <laughs> Why have I not revisited it before now? My God, this is wrong. Um, because it's just like, holy cow, this is, it feels like the pinnacle of filmmaking like happened <laughs> then. <laughs> like, yeah. like, it's like, yeah. if you want to just like, do a laundry list of like, just what should a movie accomplish? Uh, like just a standard good movie. It feels like this one did it and just like did it the best. 
and you can do variations on this and do different kinds of movies. But as far as just like a good movie, like every scene in this movie is so efficient and is doing mm. two or three things at once. And you've got, yeah, the incredibly witty, always entertaining dialogue. But you've also got great structural work. You've got great stakes in place and like intractable situations it's never a dull moment but it's also complex and smart and very much in a time and a place and it has a theme man it's just like wow it, it's doing it all in 1942 they'd already figured it all out by then <laughs> you know that's, that's the old movie you know like bs perspective that is easy to get into in your, in your 20s or whatever of just i mean yeah they made movies back then but like we really figured them out you know, in my era, like yeah. in the 90s, was it when they figured it out? <laughs> and this just shows you no, like you can watch a movie like Casablanca today and it feels, like you said, Brian, incredibly modern because it, like, it, it does everything that I would, I would hope a modern screenplay would do. And there's, and there's very little, I mean, there's, there's a little bit of easing into it because you start with the kind of, you know, the globe and the, the news of the world kind of voiceover and, uh, you know, the, the first scene on the street still kind of feels old movie-ish the way it unfolds, you know, with the, the guys being uh, shot. Um, but but very quickly, as the movie moves into Rick's and you start getting these vignettes of people and uh, you start meeting the main characters, very quickly, there's no, like, goggles you have to put on to, like, forgive it for being an old movie. Right. It's just good. And that that was just so impressive because I was ready to go in with those goggles and be like, you know what? I'm going to appreciate it for what it is. It was made in 1942. Like, there's going to be a lot of bumps, and but like, I'm going to forgive it. And pretty quickly, I was like, nope, no bumps. I'm just enjoying this ride, and everything keeps happening exactly as I want it to, and it's just getting better and better. Holy crap. Uh, so, yeah, I am on board the Casablanca train 100%. I loved it. It was so great. That makes me yeah. so happy to hear, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I like. I wanted to watch it again today, but I didn't have time. I was, mm. yeah, I was really excited. To, I'll watch it with you it. anytime. Yeah. <laughs> now I want to see it in theaters. Now I'm now mm -hmm. I'm going to have an out for like American Cinematheque. Yeah, something in LA. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, and it, it's so interesting. Yeah, the phrasing that you were using there of like, you know, oh, they figured it out in 1942. And what's fascinating about this movie, given how perfect it is, is that it is also uh, had a famously not smooth production and the writing process and, you know, writing new scenes every single day and figuring it out as, you know, as they were shooting it, basically, which I think I'd gotten some of that context, like from my dad before I watched it for the first time. But it, it, like, you don't need that context to appreciate it, obviously, Uh Trisha, I feel like maybe you know more about some of the like behind the scenes -y stuff that was happening. Yeah, I mean, just as a, a, a brief summary. So this is based on an unproduced play. And it was like the the play itself was like so like optioned or sold, I think, um, for, you know, actually a good chunk of money at that time. And, you know, keep in mind, this is the Hollywood studio system. So this is where movies are being made, like, at an assembly line. Um, and stars belong to certain studios. And there's just, you know, a big guy behind a desk in, like, a big room smoking a cigar. And he's just making decisions about what... Played what, by Sidney Greenstreet. Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> or whoever played him in Mank or whatever. Um, yeah. Right. But, yeah. So this is, like, movies are very much thought of as you know, I guess products in the way that we kind of think about movies now. Um, and, but except that studios were making so many more of them. 
Like we're talking mm. hundreds of movies a year and they're making pretty much straight genre stuff, right? They're making adventures, they're making musicals, they're making romances, they're making like slapstick comedies. And that's kind of it. Um, and this movie was not intended to be special. Like, you know, everybody belongs to the studio. They have this play. They think there's some potential there. Um, but given the war and everything that was going on in the war, it seemed like a, you know, kind of salient uh, piece of IP that the studio could acquire and adapt. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. I think I heard that the the reader that read the the play, that it came in uh, like on December 8th, like right after, right. like the day yeah, after yeah. the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And exactly. It was like, oh, this oh, is wow. extremely relevant. Um, so they saw a chance to kind of like, yeah, make a, a wartime picture. And it's interesting because the wartime pictures that you typically see from this era are like made afterward, right? Because it was kind of like, here's right. how everything shakes out. Um, and we kind of like have the lenses on or they're like just about people in the trenches kind of thing. Um, so anyway, all that to say, they had only about half the script written when they like went into production. And even though the love triangle was essentially the same and does essentially have the same ending in the play, they certainly hadn't decided like how the details of the, like everything was going to kind of shake out. Um, and so, and like a lot of the subplots too, those are completely new. Those are not from the play um, and how they interweave with, you know, Rick's arc, that's all was just kind of made up as they went along. And they had, I don't know, a crazy number of like so many different writers that came in and did passes. And uh, the fact that this feels cohesive, like it feels like no moment of it is wasted. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the theme is in every bit of it. And like, every piece of dialogue is super smart and, you know, pointing directly at the theme is astounding um so yeah it's just one of these examples of like you could never make this again and this is also not how you should make movies right. <laughs> <laughs> like engineer it use use this as a template to then carefully carefully engineer a movie but but don't right. fly by the seat of your pants the way that the people who are making this movie did uh and that's i think like there were tons of other movies that were being made that were, you know, about the war, about romance, about this and that, and, you know, set in Europe and intrigue and thrillers and all this stuff. And we don't remember any of them. Um, and there's a reason why I remember Casablanca. Yeah. And I think that there is something, something really huge to be said about the fact that it was speaking to the, to the war that was still happening. Oh, you yeah. Know? yeah. Um, and uh, I remember uh, I saw The Great Dictator for the first time uh, about two years ago in the Charlie Chaplin movie. Um, and that was two years earlier, 1940. And he is like playing Hitler and like giving a speech to camera about how people should and should not behave and like first of all it feels like can he give that speech today you know like <laughs> it felt like so like crazily um you know relevant watching it in 2019 or whenever i watched it um but but there's a you know there's a there's a ballsiness there right because Granted, we have we are we're always making art that speaks to the time. Um, you know, most recently we have something like "Don't Look Up," right? A very different kind of thing. But I mean, I guess not that different from the Great Dictator if you if you think about just like hard satire, right? That's like mm -hmm. we are going to be kind of cartoony, but we are going to make like really strong points to wink to camera. But I just it just feels to me knowing what World War II was, it feels like there is 
it feels more of a like it was more of a risk maybe you know to do that kind of stuff because you you genuinely didn't know if you know six months from now you were going to be invaded and then they're gonna be like oh you're the one who made this movie huh well <laughs> guess what sorry for you um so i don't know that it there feels like there's um uh you know a strength there and like kind of an irreverence and a boldness uh to these movies and i think that is why they feel even if you don't even watch these movies with your what was going on at the time brain on um i think there is a sort of passion behind the filmmaking that just shines through i mean when i watched this movie last night and realized it was 1942 i i didn't know that i really thought it was mm. a post-war movie um and it really made it poignant you know watching this movie about these characters in the situation where it's like, no, this is in the, when this movie was made, mm -hmm. this was current day. <laughs> this was mm -hmm. not being made about an event that had resolved. This was an ongoing, you know, <laughs> global <laughs> crisis, um, refugee crisis. Yeah. And there is a very pointed message in here about American isolationism. Right. And right. so and right. that had literally just like ended and America had just entered the war. So actually, this right. is not set in 1942. It's set in 1938 before America mm. has entered the war. Um, and so, you know, there's that beautiful line where he's like, what time is it in New York City? I bet they're asleep in New York City. I bet they're asleep all over America. Mm. Right. And there's a reason why the character of Rick is like his whole thing is he has to get involved in the fight, right? He doesn't want to get involved mm, in the fight, but right. it's the right thing to do. And that's very pointed commentary for something that literally had just happened. Um, so, it, it, you know, again, this is like political satire that is like piping hot. Uh, not satire, but um, commentary that is piping hot right, um, yeah. from the studio here. And the fact that like, you know, again, yeah, we know how it ended. Um, and this is like, this is the thing that turns the war, right? <laughs> like <laughs> Rick gets involved and like he helps Laszlo escape. And this is the thing that makes the difference um, in, you know, what is conveniently and and truly considered to be like the greatest battle of the century or the greatest, you know, conflict of the century. I think that's a big part of the reason we're all still here. Yeah. Talking well, yeah. And I think that's, like I remember watching the movie the first time being really entertained by it, but then watching it again and reading about it and like letting all of the layers that are happening sink in where just like you're saying, like Rick is a symbolic representation of the United States. And like yep. all of everything that's happening has this greater thematic symbolic meaning to it that is there if you want to think about it in that way. And is very pointed as you're saying, and even like the last lines of like, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, says mm. the American to the, uh -huh. the European, like all uh -huh. these things. Uh, there's just so much, so many layers and so much meaning to it. And I was watching a behind the scenes thing and it was an interview with some professor from NYU or something. But talking about this era of, you know, the, the, the studio system, as you were saying, Trisha, and just like classic Hollywood in this period of time where movies could be both art and entertainment and where this is a movie filled with artistic uh, flair and aesthetics and intention, but is also extremely entertaining. And yeah, kind of learning that like Michael Curtiz, the director, that was one of the things that he often sought in the films that he was making is like, how do I kind of take this uh, maybe singular genre piece and like smash it together with some other stuff? So this is a melodrama love story, but it's also a political thriller. Like we're saying, it 
it's a film noir. Like the cinematography is definitely borrowing from all these noir inspiration things. And uh, yeah, it's just such a fun blend of things that all work and support each other. As we're saying, like the dialogue is super witty. It's a comedy kind of. And I think that's it. Watching it most recently, it made me sad that we don't have more movies like this that are trying to operate on all these different like levels that we've kind of like sifted and sorted into like, well, like art films are a 24 films and like entertainment is over here. And there's like all these different things. I just love that. This is a movie that has it all. And obviously not every movie can have it all, but I want more movies to try because yeah, it it's great. It's why parasite rocks. Um, But yeah, because because I it's something I talk about a lot, which is like you do have these sort of the sort of spectrum, right, where it's like here. Here's the movie that's trying to like be really thematically heavy and really talk about a thing and be really philosophical and whatever. And then here's ambulance or whatever like you know here's like the um just like the 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 blockbuster and stuff and there's plenty of stuff in between but it's but it feels like only maybe a couple times a year if that do we get that movie that like you said michael just feels like it's doing everything um and and again that's why you know casablanca is not mentioning all these you know, pop figures from the time, right? These relevant things because it's because it maybe knows that it wants to be a movie that's relevant in 80 years. If you are making all these references to be like, we're going to call you out, you know, general such and such for not signing that thing back in the place or whatever, then that that movie becomes dated in five years. Um, But when you just make a movie that's like kind of a cool, tense romance then you can just watch that movie with your entertainment brain on and just have a good time or you can dig into it you know and do the thematic work and do the historical work and all that kind of thing and then be like oh no this movie is working on you know it's working banging on all cylinders it's like a it's <laughs> firing, like firing firing yeah, there you yeah. Go. it's doing it's it's work with when you go to the place and then the thing happens and you're like thing happened yeah <laughs> yeah right that's the metaphor <laughs> you know getting your letters of transit to the proper recipients can be very difficult your couriers might get killed the papers stolen causing a whole hubbub that could leave the whole fate of the world in question you know it's easy Sending files with Massive. Massive is a file sharing service that lets media professionals quickly transfer terabytes of data to anyone in the world over the cloud. With Massive, there are no limits to the amount of data you can send, and Massive has 150 servers worldwide, which means whoever you're sending the file to will be able to download it at a maximum unthrottled speed. Transfers are encrypted, so no one but the sender and recipient can access the files. And sending files with Massive is super simple. You don't need a subscription to sign up or a complicated IT setup. Just pay as you go at 25 cents per gigabyte. To learn more and to sign up for Massive, head to massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay. When you sign up at that link, you'll get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's massive.io slash beyond dash the dash screenplay for 100 gigabytes free. No letters of transit required. The link is in the show notes. Thanks to Massive for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. Now, back to the episode. I mean, maybe this is a good time to talk about the construction of the characters because yeah. I think that's the what characters... I was just doing. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think banging on all the things meant, Trisha? <laughs> 
Um, I think the characters are what help to like hold everything together because the tone weaving the comedy into the thriller elements into, you know, the sort of drama, melodrama, romance elements. That only works because of the way that the characters are designed. And we understand that Rick's dry sort of sense of humor is a defense mechanism for him, right? This entire movie is about Rick's like walls coming down and Mm -hmm. his assertion that, you know, he's the only cause he's interested in. He sticks his neck out for nobody. um, And, you know, all the wonderful, amazing lines that we get from him about how little he cares about anything. He's not a part of the war. He only has a sporting interest in, you know, whatever, who has, how, whether Laszlo escapes or not, all of that stuff. All of that is a part of the character. So while we register that wit as being funny, and some of the greatest lines in this are just delivered so dryly and straight yeah. by Humphrey Bogart, and yeah. he's amazing. Um, but we also understand it's, he's not there to crack a joke to us, the audience. He's, dealing with the situation that's in front of him by kind of, you know, giving us this sort of sarcastic and, and dry sense of humor. The same thing with the other, you know, primary comedic character in this, who is uh, Renault, And mm-hmm. he's, you know, thinks of himself as being like a little bit of the life of the party. Like he's kind of constructed the perfect setup for himself where he can have whatever he wants in this town and is trying to play both sides of everything and charm everybody and keep the situation chill. And so he's kind of lightly like making light of everything. And those things are baked into the characters. They don't feel like they're disrupting the underlying tension of the movie or the underlying conflict of the movie. In fact, they are feeding into it by like reinforcing these characters' facades. And that's why I think the tone ultimately works because you know who doesn't crack jokes? Ilsa, <laughs> Laszlo, <Right>. Laszlo. <laughs> like, yeah. nobody else, basically. There are a few <laughs> right. other little moments of levity, right? With like Sasha, the bartender, and some of the mm, other people right. around. And Sam, and yeah. yeah, Sam, yeah. Those people have like little moments here and there. But mostly it's putting the humor onto these two characters. And it's an active part of the character design and the theme. It's their facade. And I just think that's such a smart way to approach something. And that's why I love it, like... Again, it's not physical comedy. It's not situational comedy. It's just the wit in the dialogue that rises organically out of the character design. Right. That's that's such a good point. <laughs> so the characters who are trying to like learn English and so the oh, answer, I love what watch yeah. Ted watch such watch such much. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, every every like small character too is so well drawn, and yeah. you, you're never taken out of the movie by any like lesser actors that are kind of brought in for a scene, even, even, you know, characters that are in one scene, like that young couple that are trying to win the roulette, like, like she's so striking and memorable in that scene with him. And yeah, I've never taken out of the movie because uh, somebody comes off as, you know, just like a extra or like, they're not, they don't really belong in this time and place. They're kind of, standing out as like oh just an actor uh there's something that really what's the word immersive about the world of ricks mm-hmm. and this and this universe that yeah the artifice isn't really there you're just in casablanca with these and you know i think about um talking about rick's the defense mechanisms i think that's such a good point trisha about how the comedy is not cracking jokes for joke's sake not trying mm-hmm. to insert 
comedy to make sure the audience is still happy. It's truly part and parcel with his struggle um, over the course of the movie, which is just he has so many defenses up and he has to learn to kind of get back in touch with who he used to be. And I think it's it's so wonderful how the movie always shows us a little bit of that heart of gold peeking through like from the beginning, there's little acts of kindness uh, that he's doing for people, even as he says and tries to outwardly present himself as I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And it's just such a it's so wonderful to watch a movie uh, where a character is, is that complete mm. where from the beginning, you can see that inner struggle coming out and it's so real. Like, like we yeah. know that person that is putting up the sarcastic defense mechanism, but also really cares and their actions are tipping the hat to, they do have a heart and they do care actually, but they're scared and they don't want to yeah. be taken advantage of or feel vulnerable again. Yeah. yeah, we we see a lot of movies where a character has that arc, but they but it doesn't feel earned at all. It just sort right. of feels like, well, it's the third act. So now they yep. feel differently than they did the entire movie. And it's almost like it's cool because no one's going to see it coming or whatever. And it's like, no, but then it we didn't see it coming. Therefore, it, it doesn't feel earned or organic at all. And like you said, you start to get like that's what that young couple is so crucial to to um, to Rick's arc because it's like, oh, he he just stuck his neck out for someone. That's pretty cool. Yeah, right. that's that's the turning point, you know, but I, yeah. I do think there's there's smaller, less risky actions yeah. he takes throughout the movie, which I really appreciated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we were saying in a recent episode about theme, you know, better to be on the nose in your face for the audience front and center with your theme than not have it at all. And mm -hmm. this movie definitely is not shy about putting the theme of, you know, Rick needs like. Rick has a soft underbelly and he has his guard up. And this this story is basically about that, like watching his defense mechanisms come down. There's all these little subtle things. But also, Renault at one point is just like, you're super cynical. I think underneath there, you actually have like a really like soft heart <laughs> because you did this thing and you did that thing. And so like that's definitely there in the audience's mind. And then kind of getting to some of the structural abnormalities uh there's the flashback right mm -hmm. where we right. it's yeah. like now we go to a paris flashback for a little bit kind of 20 minutes into this film 2030 it's an interesting choice but i feel like it really cements this idea of like oh there's a real rick under there like there is yeah. we get to know that him and now we we've, we've seen them together and how in love they were and so now there it's like a deepening of the investment for us of like well we want yeah. we want to see that rick come back now that we've you know had a relationship with that rick as well also they totally did the before sunrise before sunset thing like, oh the train him at the train station oh, yeah. 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 you didn't meet him there right yeah. yeah well this movie is so good at introducing characters before we meet them and it helps to create mm. like our expectations and the construction of them. And so like we, it does it like a few times, right? Where we get it with Rick, obviously. And then there's like a finally a wonderful reveal, right? Where so first mm -hmm. we hear about Rick um, from Renault and then he's mm. like, oh, he'll be at Rick's. Everybody comes to Rick. Rick never drinks with customers. We hear that, uh -huh. you know? Um, and then we finally get to see him like playing chess with himself, like, you know, signing checks and whatever. It's the characters built up before we even get to meet him. And then, of course, immediately is tested, right? Um, and when uh, Ugarte shows up with the letters of transit and all that stuff. And so we get that. But we also get the same thing with Laszlo, right? Where it's like, 
oh, Victor Laszlo, that's interesting. He's coming into my bar. Mm. And someone comments like, oh, I don't ever think I've seen you impressed, Rick. Like, that's fascinating. And it, it does it even like a little bit with Ilsa, even though we don't know we're looking for her, right? Someone, I think it's... Uh, Renault says like, oh, I, I was informed you were the most beautiful woman in Casablanca. But he, actually, even before that, he says, you know, I, he'll take one. No, no, no. I've seen the lady. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah. And so there's just these little things of like it helps us stay oriented, but it also constructs the characters for us. And they do the same thing with the Paris flashback where we know that Rick and Ilsa knew each other in Paris because they talk about it in dialogue. And yeah. only then after they talk about it in dialogue where we have a certain expectation of it, then we see it for real. So I think it's just like a really masterful like delay in like showing us things. Like they almost tell us about it before they show it to us, but it works because we're seeing the contrast between what we've heard about a thing and then what we actually see ab about either that person or that situation. Definitely. And um, I, it also feels like this movie is like prequel proof because of everything you're saying, yep. where it's just like, <laughs> where it's like you put the prequel in the movie and then there, <laughs> 80 years later, no one's made a crappy prequel. because It's like, no, I guess we already saw all that stuff. We can't put it, but it, but you know, if there was just a monologue about you, you left me at the train station, sweetheart, then it would just be like how many plays and movies and terrible things would have been made showing it. It's like, no, just put your prequel in the movie. That's my lesson. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, it is interesting. You know, uh, Captain Renault is a really fascinating character because, you know, yeah. he has his own moral complexities and he's maybe further on the side of spectrum, uh, further than Rick on the spectrum of like cynical and maybe unlikable and that he's, you know, he's he's skeezy he's running some very stuff. bad guy I mean, yeah, like, I mean, sex for papers right. very bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yes, which I, I don't think I like fully picked up on until this most recent one. And I was like, oh, right. wow. OK, impressive that you managed to get that past, you know, the, the censors back in the day. There was some heavy right. rewriting. Right. Yeah. I feel like there's a scene in the police station where somebody's like the blonde is here you know, for her papers. And he's just right. to, like take off his he tie or something. At, yeah. yeah, he buttons. <laughs> yeah, we know what's going on. So, yeah, yeah. clearly uh, not a great person. But also, like, the function that he serves, uh, it is interesting that he's almost an audience surrogate in a weird way, which just kind of came to me as you were talking there, Trisha, because so much of what we're told about Rick comes from him and his kind of commenting, as we're saying, like, you know, Rick says, I don't st stick my neck out for anybody. And he's like, why is foreign policy? I'm with you. Uh, but then when, like, you know, Rick does have a drink, he's like, wait a minute, I've never seen this happen before. Like, oh, my God, like, look at how you're changing is basically what he's saying, mm -hmm. like, many times throughout. But again, in this, like, organic way that feels natural to the character because of the way the character is designed. And so, again, it's that thing where it's it's serving a function, but also it, it's like it's serving 10 functions at once and none of them feel wrong, which is very impressive. That's why this movie feels like so modern i think to me is that it, it is often doing many things at once where you're you're doing maybe some thematic work where you're pointing out the theme to the audience but also this character pointing out that theme right now is a, actually adding tension to this scene because he's making this comment about rick and like oh rick you never do this why are you doing this right now the german soldiers are over there you're sitting down with victor laszlo like you know it, there's there's both 
you know, in the scene, stakes are being raised, themes are being called out. The character speaking is revealing their insecurities and 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 their stuff, uh, and that's just the best kind of just scene work. Like I, I, I wrote down just all the scenes are scenes. <laughs> because, and I think what I meant by that was that like yeah, every every character speaking every line. Uh, it's it's revealing character it's, it's upping the ante with the stakes it's complicating things it's getting at the theme which i think just we want from every scene we want every scene to be doing all these things at once and this is a movie that remarkably is just stacked with those scenes <laughs> mm-hmm. where all those things are happening all the time yeah i was weirdly thinking about uh blade runner 2049 where we were talking about how that mm-hmm. that's a movie where you don't always know what each scene is doing but then, but you're sort of like, but I'm in the hands of a capable filmmaker. So I know that all of these scenes are important. Uh, and then you realize by the end, like, okay, this is where we were going with all of this. And I think Casablanca is not as sort of wayward as, uh, as 2049, <laughs> but I feel like there is kind of in the second act, a little bit of like, wait, who has the papers and what's going on with Rick and uh, with Rick and Nelson? Like, where, where are we going? Um, especially the first handful of times you watch the movie until you know exactly, you know, where all the chess pieces are moving. Uh, but as you were just saying, Alex, then I would say this with uh, 2049 also, the scenes themselves are entertaining. So you're like, okay, maybe I don't know exactly what's what this scene is doing for the bigger plot, but I'm having a good time watching this scene. And then by the end of the movie, I'm going to feel like everything I... Everything we went through was worth it to get here. Yeah, there, there's a little bit of confusion, I think, on a first time viewing uh, because there is misdirection. Who's going on the plane and like mm-hmm. different people are told different stories about who the papers are for. And I and I, I like that. I think it does make for a great reveal at the end and allow Rick to to make that final choice at the last moment. Um, but it is on a first viewing, it is coming. You're like, wait, who knows what and who thinks what and what plan is being sold to who <laughs> uh, is a lot to track. They didn't know much of the time while they were making it. I was thinking, I was wondering right. that was, when I heard that they were writing it like <laughs> on the day, I'm like, I wonder if they knew in this scene, like who was getting on the plane yet. Right. Yeah. Like so much of like the love triangle and who was Ilsa really going to end up with was kind of like being figured out as they were shooting. And I agree that I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, like where they landed with all of it is so compelling and how these characters are drawn and the love triangle itself is really, really fascinating. Trisha, do you have some thoughts on the love triangle that you'd like to share? I have a few, but really quickly going back to what (laughs) you were saying, Alex, about the complexity of the plot. I agree. But one of the things that I love um, about especially the middle act of this is that the subplots of it are basically feeding into Rick's arc directly, even when they're not feeding into like the main story of the letters of transit. Right. So like, Things with, you know, the amazing like singing duel in the middle, you know, in the bar where the Germans start singing and then they start playing Les Marseilles and they start singing um, in a war, a singing war, if you will. And that has nothing to do with the letters of transit, right? It's not like someone in the bar is like, we're going to do this because of that. But it is feeding into Rick's arc and the tension of like, Okay, Victor Laszlo, it might be too dangerous to let him stay here, according to the Nazis, so they might try to kill him. And so, like, it's becoming more urgent that he escape. And so 
Ilsa especially is affected after that scene where she's getting more and more desperate to get Rick to give her the letters of transit. Um, the same thing with even like little, you know, moments earlier where um, the scene with Yvonne, uh, who is the woman that's in love with Rick at the beginning and he sends her home because he's not that interested in her. And then she comes back in with the German soldier. The act that we see him doing earlier when he sends her home and like he's brushing her off, but as nicely as he can is like feeding into Rick's arc where we start to see like, okay, he's actually not interested in any women whatsoever, but he's not a totally bad guy. Um, And then we start to see how that like plays out again. It has something to do with his arc. And you guys have already pointed out the young couple and how much that has nothing to do with the letters of transit, but it is about Rick's arc completely. And so it, it might feel confusing where you're like, why am I watching this person I've never seen before sit down with Rick and explain her situation? Pretty quickly, it becomes evident why that's important to us, because it's important to what's happening to Rick. I mean, that scene is so remarkable, too, because they managed to put Ilsa's words in that woman's mouth, like word for word. But it makes perfect sense for the situation that woman is describing, which is having to sleep with the police captain. Mm -hmm. Like, 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 the, you know, if, if, if someone had to do something like horrible to, like, save the person she loved, you know, could you ever forgive her? Like I, for a minute, I blacked out and I was like, is she actually like a, did Ilsa send her in here <laughs> to like get him to talk to her and then to deliver this message? And then I realized, oh no, the writers found exactly the perfect situation for her to be in, that those words could come out of her mouth and just essentially speak for Ilsa too. And that, I mean, once again, brilliant writing that that could be pulled off and it's hundred percent believable. Like there's, there's no stretch that that happened. Yeah. And in all those those scenes, as you're mentioning, Tricia, where it's maybe not about the plot and the MacGuffin of the magical transit papers, but it is about like Rick's arc. He also has moments of like tiny choice where like, you know, he, he yeah. sends the woman home with the bar guy, but he does a like and come home like quickly. Like don't st like, you know, we get yeah. the insinuation of like he's looking after her. It's kind of a save the cat moment, weirdly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or in, yeah, the the singing war, you know, when Laszlo was like, play this thing, the band has to look to Rick for mm -hmm. permission, and Rick gives them permission. And so, like, those are moments where it is revealing Rick and signaling where he is on this arc of, of change and the polarity that he's, he's dealing with. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But one of the things about that I think makes the love triangle so unique, as you mentioned a minute ago, Michael, is that the love triangle itself is so embedded in the story world and so dependent upon like the stakes of the larger world and the story world. And to a to a point where you can't make other movies like this right like you can't tie the fate of the world to your love triangle most of the time <laughs> um you could try but it's pretty hard to do in in a believable way um and i think that but that's why this feels so like sweeping and and big and epic even though it really is about you know the problems of these three little people and so 
I think that the ways in which the movie takes care to like enwrap the characters in the war and like, you know, it's already a powder keg of a situation that they're all thrown into, which is just smart um, in terms of premise. But then especially with Laszlo, he's a resistance leader, right? And like, do he and Ilsa love each other? Sure. But there's also like, he's a little older than she is. She always like respected him and looked up to him. And so she feels tied and connected to his work, right? And they kind of have to tell us that in dialogue where it's like, you're a part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. (laughs) Mm -hmm, But we kind of see that too. And there's that beautiful moment of choice when they're in the Blue Parrot when, um, you know, sorry, what's his face? The owner of the Blue Parrot tells Ilsa, I can get a visa for you. I can get you out. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go? And Laszlo tries to send her away and we can see how, and Ilsa can see how hollow that is where he's like, I would like you to go. She's like, would you go without me? And he's like, definitely I would. And she's like, you definitely would not. You've had a few (laughs) opportunities to do that. So we're in this together. That moment is super critical also for us understanding the thing that they tell us in dialogue, which is he needs her and he's too important, right? And so to like stay in Casablanca um, or be killed by the Nazis. And so again, there's this attention to the stakes at every moment that make the love triangle feel so much, I don't know, I think the thing when you think about this movie is you think about the moral dilemma Mm -hmm. because it's not just about who loves who. Right. When you have a love triangle as a writer, the bulk of your work has to be about making the choice hard. Yes. And (laughs) this choice could not be harder for anybody involved. And it's very, very interesting. And of course, there's a masterful little switch right there at the crisis where technically it should be Ilsa's choice because she's the person at the hinge of the love triangle, but she makes Rick do it. Mm. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. also like a really essential structural thing because she's like, I can't think anymore. I can't leave you. You have to think for all of (laughs) us now. It was like, okay, well, I mean, it is his movie, right? So like, it's a really interesting, yeah, it's, it's good screenwriting. Um, but yeah, I I I just like, I identify with her. Sometimes you're just like, you're exhausted. (laughs) You just, you just decide for us. You thought your husband was dead. You fell in love with this guy. Your husband's still alive. You left the guy you loved. It's so much. (laughs) so much (laughs) yeah i mean everything you're saying uh, i and i think it's cool structurally how this movie ups the stakes from a general stakes which it establishes in the opening minute right which is like everyone's here in purgatory and like they want to get out but they've been here for years here's a guy getting shot in the street like this is real you know um and then oh, here's this woman you have some history with. And then not until about the midpoint, there is still very much a present history between the two of you. Like, you know, the the movie sort of takes a little time to say like, okay, Rick and Ilsa, there's still something very much going on between them. It's not just a thing of the past. And then now we have all the pieces, as any good midpoint should, we have all the pieces in place to be like, now we are, the the rest of this movie is like, there's the general stakes here, but there's also the very, very personal stakes, right? So you're worried about everyone, just their safety, but you're also worried about these two characters and, you know, them being together. 
and and yeah, as you were saying, Trisha, like it puts everyone in kind of an impossible situation. Like Ilsa wants to escape. She wants Laszlo to escape. She wants Rick to be happy. She wants to be with Laszlo. She wants to be with Rick, you know, and like everybody has so many things that that they want. And we as the audience want, because, again, these sort of building, building, building stakes from a very from a very broad um, standpoint to a very intimate personal standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're identifying, Brian, one of the really great things about this love triangle is that you kind of want all of the options. Right. You know, like the love she has with Laszlo is a real kind of love. It's a kind of commitment to support each other and to and, you know, you have a larger cause outside of yourself and together you're going to do this really important thing. And then her and Rick, it's a different kind of love. It's romantic love. It's just it's it's less uh mission based it's less uh kind of husband and wife we're life partners based it's like we fell in love in paris and had this you know chemistry with each other that i've never felt before even with my husband who i love in this other way but not this way and you know we want both those things for our characters and they can't have them both um so it's 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 a great love triangle because you know, the worst thing is when you watch a rom-com and it's just like <laughs> This person kind of sucks basically in every way. And this person's perfect. Like who should you end up yep. with? I don't know. <laughs> um, and, and in this one, it's like, I genuinely want both for you and you can't have both. Mm-hmm. And there's no good option here. Yeah. Um, which is what you want. And that's why you can use the debate about who she should end up with as character development for your characters. If you were saying, say making when Harry met Sally, because it is a debate right. and like who you choose, like right. reveals character because it is, you know, clearly drawn on all sides, the, the thing. And it is fascinating how the stakes kind of creep up on you in a way that, or that's my experience anyway, where it feels like it should be obvious from the beginning, but it's, it's not, it's like there, because it's, it's almost like the frog boiling thing, right? Where, every little bit the stakes raise and and rise and rise until at some point i'm like wait at some point like i thought this was just who loves who but now it's like the fate of the literal world is riding on this love story how did we get here and why am i so invested in it and i think that's like what's so powerful about it is the final choice that rick makes for everybody of sending them away on the like choosing the greater good over love and like sacrifice like i think that is such a powerful choice to make and extra poignant given the historical context of it of like you know some things are more important than the love of these couple people like we need to do what's right for the greater good so i think that's it's almost just like the cherry on top of all of this is that it would also just be a great love story if you know then then they all wound up happily ever after but i think it's powerful and memorable because it is a slightly, um, you know, the character gets what they need, but not what they want. Yeah. And it's also the yep. thing that the world needs at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's impressive. yeah, I mean, that's once again, that's why it's so poignant that it was happening right in the middle of World War II, right when America got involved. I mean, it's just like, wow, what an incredible piece of art to reflect like everything in the cultural zeitgeist at that moment. And the idea of you maybe had a vision for your life and, you know, the plans for how you wanted to live your kind of individual life, that may not be in the cards because you're living in this time, in this moment. We are in a time where you have to put aside your individual desires and there's a bigger thing happening that needs you. Um, And that's a really powerful statement to make. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's such a rare message. It feels like I, it's hard to think about other movies that are, are willing to sacrifice like the happiness of the main characters mm. and, you know, movies, romantic movies, especially teach us that like love conquers all. And like, right. You should you should give up anything in the whole world and everything like right. burn your whole life down to be with the person that you <laughs> yeah. like, love like that's what movies tell us and the fact that this movie like goes to all the trouble to break our hearts along with Rick's when we see the Paris sequence and when we see him standing in the rain in the train platform and we see the like terrible cynical person he's become because he had his heart broken the movie puts us and Rick through all of that to the point where we then want nothing more than his happiness and for him to be with Ilsa. And it almost convinces us that like he can have it and also like be the person he needs to be like that. Maybe he can, it can go, you know, he can get what he wants and what he needs because Ilsa loves him too. So like, isn't there a way like, just put Ilsa on the, just put Laszlo on the plane by himself. Like, I don't, you know? right. um, so we're doing the like mental work of like, there must be a way because we've been trained to think that way. Um, and movie audiences even back then had been trained to think that way, that romantic love is the highest ideal. Mm. And the fact that this movie suggests otherwise is beautiful and different. And again, you can't imitate it because the like, the explosive situation that they all the characters are tied up in is so specific. Um, but you know, it's that it, it does echo choices that a lot of us have been through in our lives, which is like, do I really truly, if I love this person, do I really truly really want what's best for them? Um, and that's in itself a question that like I think is relatable, even if the fate of the free world does not rest on it. Right. Also, you've now put a third or, or like fourth Star Wars reference into my brain when I watch this movie, which is that this all feels like Rogue One now, where it's like, mm. oh, we we did the thing <laughs> that's going to fix the war, but like we're not happy. We just we just had to do the thing, you know. Um, so in real, the, Casablanca is speaking to real life, right? Where it's like the the choice that, that Rick makes at the end is then going to affect our real world. Obviously, in Rogue One, it's the choice that is made is going to affect our real original trilogy. Um, but I al already always thought about Star Wars with this movie because specifically when like Straza gets off the plane and is walking, I'm just like, oh, that's the Emperor Invader walking. It's like even shot from the same angle. And Rick's feels like the most likely cantina. <laughs> it's just just and of course. It's Casablanca. Like you are going to movies are going to borrow from this movie for the rest of time, probably. So it's interesting to to watch an older movie and go, oh, this feels so much like this recent thing. And you're like, oh, right, because the recent thing probably borrowed from that original thing, um, which is probably why some of the classics still feel so relevant, I think, is because right. movies have been, you know, movies have been trying to be Billy Wilder movies for for like since Billy Wilder has been making movies. And I feel like that's why they feel so relevant, because like, oh, yeah, it's not just that they were ahead of their time necessarily. It's also just people were like, I want to keep making that movie forever. Um, the big difference I notice total like sidetrack here, but for, for like the time before the end of the movie feels so different when you watch movies from like like pre-1950. I watched the 39 Steps recently and there was like nine minutes left in the file. And I was like in the in the stream that I was watching and I was like, 
we we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> and it's like, first of all, there's no end credits, right? Now we have 11 minutes of end credits. Um, <laughs> and but then second of all, it's just like the third act is, is saved for so late where it's like everything happens yeah. and then the movie is over. And, you know, this movie, especially yes. it's like we get that whole speech at the airport and then Strasse and then let's go Louie and then the movie is over and we're so right. used to you know 40 minutes before the end of the movie we're like we're starting to get into all the third act stuff and we're gonna sit through a big battle and all this stuff's gonna happen and and I love that this movie just this movie and a lot of movies from this era just feel like they they really save it so that the last 10 minutes is this like beautiful payoff where you just feel like so excited by the end of the movie and you don't feel like you've been watching the ending for half an hour I was gonna say when you mentioned there's like modern techniques one of them felt like i know some walk and talk moments mm. where i was feeling yeah. very like aaron sorkin walk and talk like just a great snappy conversation happening with a dolly shot and just yeah it feels that's why it feels so new we're still trying to achieve this in our in our best kind of character writing uh, movies and in one of the things i was watching they were talking again about uh, michael Curtiz's style and uh there was like it was basically saying like camera moves he didn't like the camera to move for no reason like all camera moves should be motivated mm -hmm. which is like david fincher's like whole thing and so it was another one of those moments of like all oh, right like everybody's been borrowing from the old classics like casablanca for forever and i think again that's why even the way it's shot even the editing like the editing feels mm. contemporary it's not like there's a bunch yeah. of really long shots or kind of overly relying on i don't even it's not that it's bad but just there's a the timing yeah there's is, a, is, is perfect yeah. timing yeah. and rhythm and and speed to it that feels doesn't feel rushed but does feel like modern and it's yeah. really a good movie as, as someone who doesn't study uh, or didn't study cinematography I, I find I'm falling more and more in love with watching older movies and studying the song shot composition, um, whether it's this movie or Citizen Kane is a, is a huge one. Um, you know, I've talked a lot about Kurosawa. You're just like, man, they thought so hard, and especially in black and white, right? Because you just have such oh, a yeah. stark contrast of everything. Um, and, and it's just beautiful to watch some of the lighting in this movie and some of the shots, you know, the shadow on the wall and all that kind of thing where you're just like, I mean, the, when he opens the safe, that shot is just like a flex <laughs> his silhouette. Like when he opens the safe, he's off, he's off screen. And yeah, you yeah. see this mm -hmm. perfect silhouette of Rick yep. as he continues the conversation. Yeah. It's just, it's too good. I want all movies to be in black and white and all third acts to be super short moving forward. <laughs> Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Casablanca. Trisha, what's your lesson? Sure. Uh, so my two favorite scenes in this movie well, one of my favorite scenes and then another one that comes right after it uh, are the one the ones where Ilsa comes to Rick's place to get the letters of transit deep in the middle of the second act, or deep at the end of the second act, which is really the crisis point. Um, and that scene itself as a microcosm is just beautifully done of the the central conflict is in the scene. It's full of subtext. Right. She's there where because he's already predicted that she'll come like to his apartment some night. Um, and then she shows up and she's trying to get the letters of transit. And, you know, she's kind of like begging at first. Or, like she's asking. She's like playing on their history. She's 
trying and then, you know, begging and then she eventually threatens and then he like is like, go ahead and shoot me. You'll be doing me a favor. And then like, it, you know, devolves into just the story of like what happened. Um, it's such a wonderful scene, but it ends with the handoff I talked about, which is where Ilsa kind of gives up on making the choice herself. She's like, I never have the strength to leave you again. Um, but like, please just help Laszlo get out. Right. Like, um, and we see that, that Rick is conflicted about that. The scene immediately after they are interrupted in that moment. And because, uh, what's his name? Um, Carl. Carl and Laszlo come back to the bar from the resistance meeting and he has Carl take Elsa home and then he goes down and talks at the bar for a minute with Laszlo and Laszlo, this is like the pivotal moment where we start to think to ourselves, like what, what's Rick going to do? And Laszlo admits that he knows that Rick and Ilsa are in love. The movie has never told us that up until that point right? Where it's, there's a little bit of plausible deniability where we think maybe Laszlo doesn't know. <laughs> um, Cause he does ask Ilsa straight out in the scene before he goes to the resistance meeting where he's like, I know what it's like to be lonely. Is there anything else you want to tell me? And she's like, no, there isn't. He's like, okay. And so we kind of think maybe he truly doesn't know or he suspects, but who knows? But then he flat out tells Rick, he's like, I know you're in love with a woman. It's a weird coincidence, but I'm in love with the same woman. And he right away makes the self-sacrificial choice. Laszlo's like, fine, you don't, you know, you don't have to help me, but I want her to be safe. I actually wish that you would take her away. Like, I would rather that she go and be with you so she will be safe. And just like, if you have the letters of transit, just save my wife because I love her. Okay. Well, you can't send that. You can't. You can't screw that guy over now. Like he's too right. good. Like right. And so those two scenes back to back create the context for which we start to see the finale unfold. And I think they're just both really critical character moments where Rick is dealing with Ilsa and he's like, I don't know what to do about this. The person I'm in love with is here, and that whole scene is incredible. And then here, Laszlo walks in. It's it reinforces the intractable question. There's no drama if the answer is easy. Yep. The answer has to be the hardest thing it can possibly be. The answer has to be so difficult we can't even imagine it. And I think that's the thing that as Rick likes, as Rick's plan plays out is that we don't even know what he's actually going to do. Like right. he's like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. As you're pointing out, I think as you pointed out earlier, Alex, it's like, he tells multiple people different things about what he's right. going to do when he's selling the blue parrot and all this, when he's selling the bar to the owner of the blue parrot and all of this stuff. We're just like, I don't know what Rick is planning to do, uh, but surely he's going to get the girl in some way. Um, but he also can't screw over Laszlo and it it should just be so difficult and like this Gordian knot that just can't be untied. And that's what drama is. Yeah. And I feel like both of those scenes are also where the the performances stood out to me, mm-hmm. where like Ingrid Bergman is so good. Cause in that scene, there's, you know, you're seeing her have to like confess, like, yes, I'm still in love with you, all this stuff. But then there's like a little niggle in the back of my brain that's like, but is she is she just saying that? Like, is this part of the persuasion also? And and even later, I believe Rick kind of said I don't, there's a whole lot of like I know that she was pretending, but then Renal is like, I know that you know that she wasn't pretending. 
they do a lot of like trying to explain like what was she really like is she really in love or not but i love that it's ambiguous enough that it leaves room for the complexity and the difficulty of that choice and it feels like a very adult uh choice and push and pull that it's like these are crazy times people do things when they're in love we're not gonna be petty about it like the stakes are too high like let's just get to what really matters and like almost that focus and not worrying about like did you cheat on me or did i cheat on him like that that isn't the main focus of the pull i think also deepens the like no we're just talking about like the deep feelings like what do people truly want which makes that choice as you're saying that much more intractable yeah the single tear going down ingrid bergman's face while she's holding the gun and like standing in that shaft of light incredible yeah (laughs) cinema uh, yeah, my lesson is pretty much the same. Uh, and Alex said a lot of it, which is just sort of like having your third person, you know, when you have two romantic leads, who you're sort of rooting for having the third person actually be a good guy just is so much more interesting. Um, and I remember, I think I mentioned this in the podcast before, there's this movie Unfaithful, uh, the Adrian Lyne movie from like 2002 with Richard Gere and Diane Lane and Oliver Martinez. And I remember you know, when I was 20 watching that movie and being like, oh, it's interesting that her husband isn't like terrible. Like, and for all I, I haven't seen this movie in 20 years, for all I know, he's a dick, but like, um, <laughs> but, he, but it wasn't like the obvious, like, well, of course she's going to go have this affair because her husband is awful. You know, it was just like, oh no, like he's kind of an okay guy, but then she is having, uh, uh, what, who am I rooting for? What am I doing here? You know? And that, that is the fun you get of, of this kind of thing. It, it makes it feel more interesting for you as the audience. And it fakes, makes it feel more realistic, right? Because there, we seldom have villains in our life. And there are there's there are places for villains, right? We have Straza in this movie. It's like, look, there's a Nazi. Great. We're all we're on the same <laughs> yeah. page. Yeah, but, and if we're not on the same page, you're probably not watching Casablanca. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was thinking about the uh, the office, the American office with Roy and Karen. So Pam's uh, fiance in the first season and uh, first couple seasons. And then Jim's girlfriend, Karen, played by Rashida Jones in the third season. And. Roy is just a dick. Basically, he is like the easy. We don't want you to be with this person. Right. And that's a great way to get us as the audience on board with Jim and Pam, because we are going like, oh, no, terrible choice. We want these two characters to be together. Easy, easy choice. Um, But there's still great drama to be had from that. But then by the third season, now we introduce Karen and it's like, oh, wait, she's actually kind of cool. And like she and Jim have fun together i kind of like her and like maybe i mean no but maybe this is you know <laughs> and that just makes it would be so easy to just give jim like a terrible girlfriend to them we were like well no i hate this why are you with her like you know wake up um but it just makes it so much more interesting to have that third person be uh be kind of a good guy and what's interesting about casablanca the third person isn't laszlo it's rick Right. It's just that who is our who is our Mm. protagonist, right? Our protagonist is Rick. But you could see this movie as told from the point of view of either Ilsa or Laszlo, where they are together and like they're just trying to escape the war. But then this ex comes into play, Rick, who owns this play, and he's got the papers. Right. And what you know, this guy, like, I got to get the paper from him, get your wife's name out of my mouth. So I just find it interesting that. We don't have a clear, uh, you know, as we talked about before, we don't have we don't know exactly what we want. Right. And then it's like we get the best ending that we can have because we like 
we like Laszlo, so we want him to be okay. We don't want Rick and if Rick and Elsa run away together, then Laszlo's stuck behind the Casablanca. That sucks, right? We don't want that ending either, right? So it's like we we it forces us to go like, what is the ending we want? And then therefore we are on board all up and right up until the last minute, rather than being like, we know what's going to happen. We knew it half an hour ago. We're just waiting for it to happen now. Uh, th this makes things a lot more interesting. It really puts you on the edge of your seat for the whole movie. 100%. Good. Again, good movie. Does the things very well. It's frustrating. <laughs> it's hard sometimes talking about these movies where it's like, I, I imagine like there's a dartboard and you could just throw a dartboard at a movie and it's divided up into like, writing cinematography acting like doesn't matter where where the dart hits yep it's amazing good. and it's good uh yeah thing. yeah good thing uh alex what's your good thing no pressure um i'll stay on the the laszlo train and just uh say that basically i think if you're gonna hang you know the dilemma on this man like being so important we do need to see why he's important at some point mm. and and like what makes him so special and and why why him like why does he need to escape and not some other resistant and i think that that the sing off you know between the two anthems or whatever in the in rick's club is that moment and we see how he takes charge he's fearless he knows the nazis are over there singing he's not afraid to get in their face and ruin their song and we see how people like like the girl that that rick sent home that night she was going out with some just random german officer kind of giving up on taking a stand in this fight she is singing the anthem she's crying uh we see how he's inspiring people like her her who had just kind of turned to nihilism and were just on the sidelines activating them into this effort so such a smart addition to, to have that scene and to have him instigate it because we see oh this is what this one man can do he can turn this whole bar against the nazis in this town uh, just from this act of rebellion and 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 because of he's so fearless he has no hesitation to just put his life on the line standing up to the enemy um so yeah you got to have if, if you're going to hang this much on somebody like that we got to see him in action and understand why him and this movie finds a way to do that just in in a bar which is brilliant yeah. no war scenes or flashbacks necessary mm -hmm. yeah that kind of ties into my lesson and and one of the aspects of it being this time i really felt that it was based on a stage play and mm. i think that it's so cinematic that that it's easy for that to be lost or not not be so overt like it can be sometimes when a stage play is adapted to a film and it's like oh it's weird that we're just in this one set this whole time uh but yeah like so much of this obviously takes place at rick's but there's all these different like many worlds within Rick's that we're kind of moving between. And that's just always really fascinating. But I think it also uh, allows for all the side characters to have something to do. Like each of them has an arc or like, like almost every person that is introduced comes back and has a moment like what you're yeah. pointing out, Alex, where the woman, yeah, that Rick sends home has that triumphant moment where like she has an arc where she's like, I'm with Rick, everything's messed up. And now I'm with this German person and it's sad. And now I'm having this like triumphant moment where I'm like standing behind my country. Like everybody has something like that where we see them multiple times and it's on theme and it makes this world feel yeah immersive i think as you said earlier alex and just well realized well drawn and uh 
Yeah, I think it's it's such a I love it when it's there and I think it's a sign of just a well constructed movie to to be able to have, you know, to know that in the beginning you're going to see an airplane flying over the heads of like refugees wanting to leave and you're going to see a young woman and her husband and she's going to say maybe tomorrow that'll be us on the plane and then an hour later she comes back and she's critical to the plot like that's so good like mm-hmm. i just love when it's just a sign of a, a really well organized thought through film and it makes it just amplifies everything else in such a great way and that's my favorite thing and one of the things we didn't get to talk about too much um so i want to say like maybe we can move this over to the discord or social media or wherever because i would love to talk to people about it is stage plays are great examples of dialogue always Mm. people Mm. in stage plays have to speak well because there's so much like that's really the information that you're getting yeah. is what people are saying in a stage play. Um, and there's more to playwriting, but if you want to study really great dialogue, study movies that are based on plays. And there is no better example than Casablanca. Rick's final monologue, like you could just break it down line by line. And like, I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Just beautiful writing. And so I, we didn't get to talk about it that much, but let's, let's keep discussing and kind of diving into some of that stuff. Cause I could just talk about it for hours. Yeah. I also think it's true of just whatever the text of your screenplay is, whether it's dialogue or action, it is, that has to communicate what you're trying to communicate. You know, I, I've had people respond to things I've written and say like, oh, well, I didn't quite get that, but like maybe in the directing and I'm like, no, 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 if it's not there now, like that's yeah. not okay. I can't wait until someone directs this to like make sure that moment is clear. If I, if it's not clear, I haven't done my job. And that's doubly true with dialogue, especially in, in movies or plays that are, that are basically just dialogue scenes. I think that discipline is definitely an important thing to be aware of, of like if your answer to the solution of the problem is like it'll all be fine once we've shot it and put it together right, right. once we've spent all the money and you can't go yeah. back and everything's written in stone <laughs> yeah. uh yeah that's probably not the the best way to try to solve your problem we've all done it <laughs> it's true <laughs> very true um awesome okay uh what else have you guys been watching recently alex what have you been watching recently so I've been watching The Dropout on Hulu, which is the limited series about Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos scandal. Uh, Holmes is played by Amanda Seyfried, and she is fantastic. And the show is great. Like, I, I haven't really followed the Theranos story much. Like, I just know there's something about the voice and... Uh, it's about a blood machine that was fake. Uh, but the the story, so this is based on a podcast also called The Dropout. That was an ABC News like investigative podcast uh, series. Just went in a deep dive of like, who is this woman who defrauded so many people and managed to get so far with basically an entirely like fake technology? And uh, it's a really fascinating character. And uh, it's got a great cast. The show's uh, stars uh, Naveen Andrews, William H. Macy, uh, Stephen Fry, just really great uh, actors playing really fun, interesting characters. And it's just a really well-made show. I was thinking it was going to be more of a caricature or just kind of... I don't know, maybe just a pure satire of this weird situation and person, but it it treats the character uh, kind of as a full human being. You know, they're really trying to understand who, like, who is this person who is 
you know, you could probably label a sociopath, but like what is what drives her and what led so many people to kind of like fall in line behind her and go on this journey that ended with like a massive Silicon Valley debacle. Um, and it's, it's just a really fun, well-made show. So I'd highly recommend the dropout on Hulu. Yeah, I've been hearing good things. I was trying to, I don't know very much about it either. And I've been trying to decide, like, do I wait for like the Jennifer, like Lawrence movie or like which one of these things should I watch the, the documentary first and then watch the show and I don't know what to do. So I'm just kind uh, of there's waiting. too much uh, Elizabeth Holmes Theranos content <laughs> yes. out there. It's just such, I mean, it's such a fascinating story that it just, yeah, everybody wants to make something about it. But um, yeah, having not seen any documentaries or yeah, the upcoming Jennifer Lawrence movie, uh, this adaptation of, you know, that is, I'm sure, highly fictionalized, but this adaptation of her story is fantastic. Cool. Brian, what have you been watching? I went to a double feature rock opera screening of <laughs> The Who's Tommy and Pink Floyd's The Wall. Um, both movies I watched as a teen, especially The Wall. I'm a big Pink Floyd fan, but I had not seen it in quite a while. They're they're really both really bonkers rock operas about a kid who loses his father in World War Two and has a strained relationship with his mother and then becomes kind of a cult leader. Um, in Tommy, he's sort of a spiritual leader. And in uh, The Wall, he's a fascist, like a pure fascist leader. Um, and of course, how that how how that brings them down by the end of the movie. Um, and yeah, Tommy is like not. A great movie if you're trying to watch a movie, but it's just this like acid trip that's really fun with Roger Daltrey from The Who as Tommy, uh, who's just like beautiful to look at. And then Anne Margaret plays his mother and Oliver Reed plays his stepfather. And then there's cameos and songs from Elton John, Eric Clapton, Tina Turner and Jack Nicholson. Uh, it's just it's so sure. weird. It's so fun. There's a lot of beans. Um, and... <laughs> What? Oh, yeah. And Margaret and Beans, if that's if that's your thing. Um, and then The Wall, I love so much. It doesn't have as much of a notable cast. Uh, Bob Geldof plays Pink, the, the main character. And there's a surprise Bob Hoskins who has like one line. But uh, but it's like a real film, like just the five minutes in. I was like, oh, yeah, this movie's like made by a filmmaker, uh, which it is. Alan Parker directed Midnight Express, Fame, Angel Heart, Mississippi Burning, Evita. Like it's a, you know, a real filmmaker, whereas Tommy, the director, made like mostly musical documentaries and stuff. And it's like, OK, that's why that doesn't feel like quite as much of a movie. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I also hadn't seen The Wall in quite a while. So I got choked up within <laughs> the first 20 minutes, just like, oh, yeah, I love this music. I love this movie. Uh, if you haven't seen them, you know, they're they're not must sees for for a film, you know, buff or whatever. But if you just want to see some like really interesting rock operas from the 70s and 80s that also are just like really fun stories with some good music and stuff. Check them out. The Who's Tommy and Pink Floyd's The Wall. Wow. Very nice. Yep. Awesome. Okay, cool. Trisha, what have you been watching? So I'm about 20 minutes from the end of Deep Water and uh, I will check back in with you when I finish it. Because I've heard things about the ending. Ooh, yeah, I, I don't know how it's going to end. Um, it's been a little bit of a journey already. Michael, um, you, you know what Deep Water is, right? Uh, oh, oh the and erotic thriller. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, right. Oh, right. Based, with the, oh. based on a uh -huh. Patricia Highsmith novel. Uh -huh. 
Oh. My gal, Patricia Highsmith, which is why I'm watching it. Um, okay. Oh, I very just Very pretty that... people and... Uh, Rotten Tomato scores. We'll circle back. <laughs> I'm not done with Directed that. by the director of <laughs> Unfaithful, the Italian Lane Richard. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Um, anyway, so a movie that I did finish, though, recently that I really, really enjoyed uh, is the movie Notorious, starring Ingrid mm. Bergman and Cary Grant. Uh, from 1946. So it, it, somehow it was a, a gap in my Hitchcock filmography. It's a it's a Hitchcock movie. Um, Ingrid Bergman made a few right after Casablanca. She made Spellbound and Gaslight and this one. Um, and I, I don't know how I had missed this, but it's so great. Like, so it's Ingrid Bergman playing totally the opposite type that she plays in Casablanca. She plays kind of like a party girl. And uh, her father is a convicted Nazi. And so she uh, gets recruited by Cary Grant, who like works for the CIA. And um, she's supposed to be a spy and like embed herself in like this ring of former Nazis who now live in Rio de Janeiro. And um, it's like a love story. It's a thriller. It's uh, it's great. Uh, It's a you know, it's a great Hitchcock like set pieces are really tense and you know dramatic and they all build and like it's a psychological sort of you know thriller kind of thing as she's leading this double life but anyway i had never seen it before and uh if you two have missed it i really really recommend it it sounds great nice i want to see it now very cool uh yeah i finally watched the last duel so i'm finally catching up with things uh and i yeah i really enjoyed it. it it was a movie where by the end i was like that was i think that was a movie i feel like that was kind of like a unique uh thing that i haven't seen in a while and i mean i'm sure i knew this i mean so yeah really scott matt damon ben affleck adam driver jody comer um and i must have known that it was told from three different perspectives someone must have said that probably on the podcast to me and i just forgot uh but it was really interesting to see how just a a simple story with the, you know, kind of designing principle of being, we're going to tell the same story from three different perspectives uh, was like so engaging and, you know, the things that they reveal a little bit more, the things that are different, the things that aren't different. Uh, And then as I remember you saying, Alex, the, the last duel is a quite tense uh, duel indeed. Um, Yeah. So (laughs) it earns its place in the title. I think it does. Uh, yeah, so it was just, it was, yeah, it was not, not like fun is probably not the right word, but it was a very entertaining, uh, movie that for being two and a half hours long, didn't feel as long as that, which is rare these days, I think. So and like a big historical period piece with a budget with like vistas and sets right. and yeah. historical period piece things. Yeah, I think yeah. it was like pretty rare. the first battle sequence where I was just like, oh my god, it feels like forever since I've just seen a Ridley yeah. Scott like like high yeah. frame rate like battle sequence. Yeah. Epic, yeah. Well, like, and the stakes are there. Like, they've spent course, like, yeah. I feel like it's the, you know, and you don't know what's gonna happen. And, uh, yeah, it's always nice to be in a story where you don't know what's gonna happen, but you care about the yes. outcome. And yeah. Yeah, it was great. Hmm. Awesome. Okay. Well, this has been our conversation about Casablanca. I think we said um, everything there is to say. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's uh, also never been said before. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> definitive podcast right here. Um, we could also just start over and do it again. Uh, yeah. And I would be fine with that also. Like, 
Record it well, again. Brian has to send Sam. us off with at least one impression because we haven't gotten any. Well, we have to talk about Peter Laurie, who, um, uh-huh. you know, our generation doesn't really know from anything except for Robin Williams as the genie saying, I can't bring anyone back from the dead. It's a dirty <laughs> job. I don't like doing it. <laughs> it's so true. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, it is weird that I was that 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 is literally how I know that person. Well, uh, also, Bugs Bunny imitates him a lot. Oh, so true. If you grew yeah, up watching yeah, Bugs Bunny yeah. cartoons, he also does like, a good Peter Lorre references. Yeah. Right. Bugs Bunny. Yeah. Peter Lorre is like in so many classic movies, but he's always just that that guy who shows up for a couple scenes, like Arsenic and Old Lace and M. And oh my gosh, there's so many. Him. It'd be weird to watch that again. I remember watching that in film school and being like, yeah. do I like German expressionism? <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, this has been our conversation about Casablanca. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Coyotes. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. As time goes, bye-bye. Wow. Bye. <laughs>